What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. As many as 75% of adolescent boys are dissatisfied with their bodies. This is a big deal, and we need to pay attention. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast, and we are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net and Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com. Thanks for being our listeners, and thank you for supporting our sponsors. As many as 75% of adolescent boys, teen boys, are dissatisfied with their bodies. Almost one-third of boys are trying to gain weight or bulk up. And according to 2019 data, approximately one in five young adult men ages 18 to 24 has an eating disorder rooted in the desire to enhance muscles. I suspect those numbers might actually be a little bit higher if we were to redo that today. Why? We have previously talked here on On Boys about social pressure and evolving body image standards for guys, but there may be more to it. A recently published research study suggests a link between childhood adversity and muscle dysmorphia, which is that desire to bulk up that kind of supersedes beyond all else. This is going way beyond fitness. Joining us today to discuss that link is Kyle Ganson, the lead researcher for that study. Kyle is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a licensed clinical social worker who has worked extensively with teenagers and young adults. Welcome, Kyle. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. What led you to research muscle dysmorphia and adverse childhood experiences? And before you answer that, some people are familiar with what we talk about by adverse childhood experiences and, and others aren't. So give us a little definition as well. Okay, so I'll start with the definition. So generally adverse childhood experiences are uh, traumatic events or adverse experiences that young people experience under the age of 18, typically. Um, and this can range from the sort of typical ones that you might think of like sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect. Um, those are kind of the big, quote unquote, big four that or five that you might hear about. Um, but there's also a lots of others like a parent who is incarcerated or oh. ex parents who experience divorce or living with a parent who has a mental illness. Um, so sort of some of those things as parent well. Parent caregiver as, with sorry? substance substance use yep. disorder, I imagine. Yep. Caregiver with a substance use disorder. Yeah. So, you know, you know, imagining family environments where there's challenge involved, right? Where, you know, it could be that the parents are not able to fully take care of their children or meet the needs of their children for some purpose that is maybe outside of their control. Um, and so, yeah, that has impacts on the development of young people um, as they go through their childhood and adolescent years. I was interested in this topic because, uh, well, I'm interested in adolescence and childhood and development, of course, as a general theme of my research and uh, some of the clinical work I've done as well. Um, of course, I'm interested in, you know, eating disorders, body image, muscle dysmorphia as well. 
Um, and there really hasn't been a whole lot of research that's looked at the relationship between adverse childhood experiences and muscle dysmorphia symptoms. Um, there has been a, like one small study that we actually found that was actually done in a different country. Um, and so we, you know, we wanted to kind of figure out if this is the case in sort of North American context. We had known that tra with trauma and adverse child experiences associated with eating disorders, um, but muscle dysmorphia, not so much. And we can maybe talk more about what muscle dysmorphia is compared to an eating disorder if you want. And so there's important distinctions there as well. Yeah, let's let's explore that a little bit because, you know, we have talked about it before, but Hello, listeners. I understand you're not all listening from the front of the catalog to the back. You might have missed that episode. So I do think it's important to understand, especially because in our context, right? You know, our listeners primarily are parents of boys. So behaviors that you see going with muscle dysmorphia can look, especially at first on the surface as healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Very typical, right? I mean, I think like that's and sort of socially promoted, especially yeah. for young boys. So yeah, typically, I mean, in a clinical sense, muscle dysmorphia is, is sort of this idea of a high preoccupation and obsession around insufficient muscularity. So perceiving oneself as being, um, you know, smaller than they actually are, or just having significant drives for muscularity. So spending lots of time and energy and, and uh, sort of emotional thought into wanting to be bigger, wanting to have a larger body, wanting to have a stronger body, uh, a more cut and lean body. Um, now, I think something that's really important to sort of share is that clinical diagnoses of muscle dysmorphia, like the prevalence of that is actually quite small. And I think we don't even really have true data to be able to say this is the sort of national prevalence of muscle yeah. dysmorphia in the US or Canada or wherever. It's very, very, you know, we just haven't gotten that kind of level of data quite yet, which is a huge issue, of course. Um, and so what we we are really focusing on is the symptomology. And so I think that's an important distinction to sort of put out there at the beginning as well, as well, as that we're not talking about kids who have muscle as like a clinical diagnosis of muscle dysmorphia. We're talking about the symptomology, which in many ways is actually more important because uh, like we're talking about, like many young boys are trying to achieve a sort of muscular body ideal. And so they may be displaying some level of symptomology uh, associated with muscle dysmorphia. Um, and so that, that includes things like, you know, drive for muscularity. So that could be like going to the gym and working out. It could be using uh, performance enhancing substances like whey protein or creatine, or even anabolic steroids, of course. Um, there's important aspects of it around like functional impairment, uh, which is this oh. idea that, you know, you're giving up on social activities or you're giving up on mm. school and work activities in order to follow your exercise practices or your dietary practices. Um, and then another component, of course, is this idea of appearance and appearance intolerance, which is basically like body dissatisfaction, right? Okay. Seeing one's body as not big enough or strong enough or muscular enough um, or good enough compared to what your sort of, you know, ideal body in your mind is. So, um, so those are kind of the general major symptoms. Um, and of course, there's lots of uh, sort of met uh, like psychiatric comorbidities attached to it as well. Like, like anxiety, depression, uh, sure. suicide is another one as well. So suicidal, suicidality. So definitely a complex issue. Um, mm. And we definitely need more, more data to understand this phenomenon. So yeah. we need more data to understand, uh, you know, prevalence, you know, that's an important distinction. And you said we yeah. don't have that yet. What subset of boys, how many boys are kind of tipping over from an appropriate and healthy interest in learning how to, you know, maintain these new bodies. Mm. It's funny. I mean, I'm not a teenager anymore. Our listeners all know that you can tell that at a glance. And at this stage in my life, 
I just said to my husband recently, it's like somebody switched the operating system for my body, but they didn't give me the manual. And I realized that sort of, you know, that's happening to our teenagers too. Absolutely. Yeah, totally, totally true. Yeah. Understanding what it is. And then the why is of course, crucially Mm -hmm. important because this is not what we want for our children. No. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding the why is really, really important. I mean, I think the sort of general consensus uh, theoretically is that it tracks very similar to what we would expect around just general body dissatisfaction and um, sort of drives to change one's body that we see in eating disorders. So certainly pressures from the media, pressures from parents, pressures from peers, um, you know, all of those uh, kind of expectations and pressures certainly are major drivers of one's desire to change one's body, uh, feel body dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. um, and try to engage in some kind of uh, body change behavior. So then yeah. related to muscle dysmorphia or muscle dis- uh, or sort of increasing muscle size or changing one's mm-hmm. body in a muscular way. Um, well, and you you said, you know, this is, this is a complex issue. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about parents out there going, okay, when do I worry? When do I not? Yes. You know, we've got the, we've talked about this before of the eighth grade boy in contrast to the eighth grade girl. And it's like, yep. guys, just give yourself a couple years. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yet they're yeah. already in that place of like, I want to bulk up. I need yep. to do this sport or whatever, whatever that is. And, and definitely being fed by media images and Um, often by coaches mm -hmm. i mean i cannot tell you how i mean i can everybody listening knows this like if your kid is a middle school kid or a high school kid in a sport Mm -hmm. odds are there is a coach telling them to get in the weight room get in the weight room get Mm -hmm. in the weight room and that's true for girls sports as well as boys sports yeah true true yeah and i think yeah, I think you can't overlook to to just the the pressures that boys are experiencing on social media and in the media around body image and body ideal. They often give the example of like The Rock or Dwayne Johnson. You know, he's like one of the most followed people on. I think he's like top five followed people on Instagram. And not to like you know throw shade on him or anything like that, but like he's posting images of his body and working out, and he's this massive mm-hmm. human that obviously spends a lot of time trying to you know hone his body and and perfect it, but you know, those are the images that 250 plus million people are viewing. Um, and you can imagine a lot of them are young boys and seeing that as that's the expectation that I should be, you know, following. And I think the other component of this, I think is really important that I often like to focus on is that sometimes for boys, it's not always about the aesthetic uh, appearance. It's actually about the function. And I think boys are sort of um, told and socialized that their body should be very functional in some capacity. They should be able to do specific things um, like for example, I've, I've worked with, uh, people with binge eating disorder, men with binge eating disorder before, and they've shared things like, um, and they're in larger bodies and they share things like, I, I can't do things that I should be doing, like mow the lawn, you know, or like change the oil in my car just because I have a larger body. So it's not only about the aesthetic appearance of bodies, but mm-hmm. it's actually about the functional aspects. And I think that is where the link between sports becomes very important, especially yeah. for, you know, in the North American context, there's a ton of pressures around, getting us getting getting into a sport you know being good at it uh, excelling trying to get a scholarship for college right there's those pressures that are out there mm-hmm. um and so yeah it's just kind of the cycle that the young people are in so you obviously have all of this background knowledge because this is your area of expertise you've got years of study and research into <laughs> this and when you looked into it you said huh nobody's really done a a, a great study um in the north in north america looking mm-hmm. at adverse childhood experiences and muscle dysmorphia. 
there's probably a link because adverse childhood experiences are related to a whole host of outcomes that we we don't want for any of ourselves. So um, explain how this study came to be. And then it's always interesting to hear how a study sort of evolves from the idea, what we thought Mm -hmm. we were going to do, and then how it played out in the real world. I'll give you some context to the study. So this is a large study. I've called it the Canadian study of adolescent health behaviors. And so they're really in Canada, there really hasn't been a lot of good research. Uh, I mean, there's some, some research, but not a lot of good research compared to the U S where we have like the youth risk behavior survey, oh, yeah. which tries to capture, you know, risk behaviors that young people are engaging in. So we don't, we don't have a really good system for that, like a surveillance system. Um, now I, I wouldn't call my study a surveillance system. I would call it like a, a start to try and get some mm-hmm. context of what young people are engaging in. Um, and so I, I did a study, a few, this study a few years ago and collected a sample of about 2,700 young people. Um, and so I followed them over two years. And so I asked multi, I asked after a year, I followed up with them and gave, asked them more questions. Um, and so, and a major focus of it, of course, was related to eating disorders, body image, muscle dysmorphia, use of appearance and performance enhancing drugs, um, and sort of try and capture those like really topical issues that young people are engaging in. Um, And of course, you know, one of the things we hypothesized and knew and considered what would be relevant in these topics would be adverse childhood experiences, that if young people were experiencing adversity, um, that they'd be more likely to have different symptomology related to eating disorders, body image, muscle dysmorphia. And so um, that's kind of how the study came came about. And we sort of knew that once we collected the data, we would run this analysis to look at this association. And um, so yeah, thankfully, it actually went as planned, <laughs> uh, which is Woo-hoo! good. Um, yeah, that's that's always a positive that there wasn't anything mm-hmm. that was majorly. Uh, was changed. this over um, over COVID times? This was, po- well, I guess, I don't know, consider post-COVID. Yeah. So this data was collected um, about this time last year. So, okay. Uh, so it's, it's, I guess you could call it post-COVID, right? Most of these, most at that point, like the lockdown stuff was all done. Yeah. Yeah. And all that. Um, so that's, that's good. <laughs> so uh, give us a, a top, top lines of your research results. Um, what yeah. did you find? Those research results coming up after these messages from our sponsors. Listeners, I know that you sometimes feel like your home is bursting with the boundless energy of your boys. Mine has been for a very long time. We want to tell you about Home Threads, where style meets the wild adventures of raising boys. At HomeThreads.com, you can find a collection of uh, furniture and home accessories designed to meet the needs of your growing boy family. They have everything from durable bunk beds to upscale gaming tables. You can turn your home into an attractive, durable playground, believe it or not. Uh, Janet and I both love their baking dishes. Solid, beautiful, functional. Anything you need for your home, you can likely find on homethreads.com, and we have a discount code for you. Go to homethreads.com slash onboys. You can get a code for 15% off your first order, because every leap, laugh, and loud moment deserves a space that embraces the chaos with style. Home Threads, love where you live. Yeah, so we, we looked, I should say, we looked at all people of all genders. So we had women and we uh, young girls and women, and the, and the sample ranges from 16 to 30. So it's like okay. an adolescent young adult sample. 
Um, and we also looked at, we had a few, we had about, uh, I don't know, 85 to hundred people who identified as trans or gender non-conforming as well. Okay. And so at large among the whole sample, we found that, um, experiencing adverse childhood experiences, particularly a greater number. And for the listeners who aren't really familiar with this kind of process, um, you know, adverse childhood experience, one way of looking at them is not necessarily looking at the individual, like, like types of adverse childhood experiences, like is sexual abuse associated with this? Most of the time, research focuses on number of adverse childhood experiences ex that one experiences. So, and generally that ranges from like zero to four. And the research really tracks that if you experience four or more ACEs, you are generally more likely to have more adverse outcomes in your life. Um, and so that's kind of the protocol we did as well, which is looking at number of ACEs that one experienced. And so, yeah, like, you know, not surprising, we, we found that those who experienced the greater number of ACEs, particularly, uh, like we actually did five or more versus four or more, particularly five or more, were more likely to experience symptomology related to um, muscle dysmorphia. And in particular, uh, the sort of idea of functional impairment. So again, um, you know, in, in your working out practices, your dietary practices, interfering with your social life, interfering, the rest interfering of your life, your, your life expectations mm -hmm. at this time. Um, as well as your appearance and tolerance. So by dissatisfaction, muscle dissatisfaction. So those were the two that we really found. Um, and so then, again, that was kind of among the whole sample. But then when we looked at uh, whether gender, so whether gender was like a modifier, so is gender actually impacting that association? Um, and we did find that, yes, it was. And in particularly boys. So boys who experienced um, greater number of ACEs, five or more, had higher scores compared to the other genders. Um, as it relates to muscle dysmorphia symptomology. So it definitely, um, while in the whole sample, it was sort of tracking that everybody was kind of experiencing that, that association, um, it was particularly strong for the boys and young men in the sample. So, um, which in some ways is not too surprising, given that we know that generally boys and men are more likely to experience muscle dysmorphia symptoms. Um, but it yeah. is interesting that compared to the other genders, that was even more so, right? Compared to the other genders who experienced those levels of ACEs, yeah. Also really experienced that high level of symptomology. So it kind of points to boys, young men who uh, experience significant, maybe in terms of uh, quality, but definitely quantity of adverse mm -hmm. childhood experiences, maybe more likely to present with muscle mm -hmm. dysmorphia compared to girls and women, maybe more likely to present with like different symptoms um, yeah. and issues later in life. Yeah, exactly. Right. It may be more associated with um, sort of just a general body dissatisfaction, maybe yeah. versus like a body dissatisfaction focused specifically on um, like, you know, muscularity and things of that nature. Um, I will also say, too, that, um, you know, with this measure that we used, um, that's a very commonly used measure of muscle dysmorphia symptoms, there's actually a clinical cutoff. So again, it's not a, like a diagnostic score, yeah. like, oh, you, you were yes, diagnosed or you're not. So it's more like a if you score above this number, then you're at like clinical risk would be maybe the term we would use. And actually what we found, which is really surprising, is that um, about 30% uh, of the young boys who had five or more ACEs uh, were at clinical risk of muscle dysmorphia. So we're like above that clinical cutoff, which is a really high percentage. And, um, yeah. and that compares to the girls in the sample who only had, it was only 10%. So 10% of the girls who were above the, had five or more ACEs um, we're above that clinical cutoff. Mm -hmm. So 
really we're talking shows one in three almost, you know, basically. Yeah. Almost one in three. Right. So yeah. um, that shows you that there's definitely something worth further investigating as it relates to the association between uh, ACEs and muscle dysmorphia mm -hmm. uh, among, you know, young boys for sure. Cause it definitely shows that there's that, that potential clinical risk, right. That's pushing people over the edge of, um, you know, of severity of symptomology. Yeah. And I also just put a caveat in here as we're talking to, that's just important is that this is a cross-sectional study. So we don't, we don't know longitudinally is like ACEs associated with muscle dysmorphia, like long-term, um, we can make some hypotheses that there is like a time ordering that happens, right? Cause the way that the question around ACEs was asked was like in your lifetime before the age mm -hmm. of 18, um, sure. Did you experience these things? And so, and then the muscle dysmorphia is measured at the time of survey. So you can sort of think that there's likely some time ordering that happens where ACEs come prior to muscle dysmorphia symptoms, but because it's not a sort of a, a longitudinal cohort study, we can't really say one leads to the other, but we can definitely see that there's a link between the two. I love talking to researchers because you point out <laughs> those things and, you know, it's that classic, uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. Exactly. Like you've not yes. shown that. And yet like intuitively everybody that's reading this is like, yeah, but odds are good. Like there's yeah. odds that are good that, and the way the questions are asked that it's likely that the adverse child experiences happen prior to the yeah. measurement of mm -hmm. symptomology, but we don't know whether the symptomology was starting before or after. So it's, yeah. So it's always good to just put that caveat out there. Yes. But if anything, what it tells us is more research is needed, right? Like we do actually need to do a cohort, like longitudinal study where we follow young people over time and assess, does this mm -hmm. lead to, you know, this other behavior basically. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's, uh, that's just an important, again, important caveat to put out there. I, I will say that we, we did do another study that looked at um, the use of appearance and performance enhancing drugs. So those would be things like whey protein and creatine and uh, steroids. Um, and actually we did find longitudinal associations in oh. that study. So um, that if you experience adverse child experiences in your childhood, you are more likely to use both legal and illegal substances. So again, like whey protein, creatine, um, steroids. So we did that study prior to this sort of study. So it was sort of informed what we did here. And, you know, we obviously people who are experiencing muscle dysmorphia symptomology are very commonly using these types of substances sure, sure. Uh, as well. You know what's coming to mind? We're talking about this age range. And, and Jen said at the beginning that one in five 18 to 24 year olds have an eating disorder. You're talking about, you know, 18 to 30 year olds. And it just reminds me of the conversation that we had with Dr. Michael Reichert, who said, I think his range was 18 to 24-ish, mm -hmm. that boys in that age said, nobody really knows me. Hmm. Wow. Nobody really knows me. And this is the age when your son's going off to college. Yeah, They're out yeah. of the house. And yeah. so that connection is getting thinner, shall we say. How does all that play into this? Yeah, I think, and I think there's another component of it too, which is um, just around the general sort of socialization process for young boys is just so different mm -hmm. than girls. I think girls are generally more uh, socialized to connect with their peers and to be more social and, and connected in that way. Whereas for boys, I think there's just, um, there's not that kind of pressure, right, around like creating a friend group and engaging in those sort of social connections. And uh, I think also just like, again, those very typical 
masculine norms around like uh, emotional restraint and kind of being uh, being able to do things on your own without asking for help. And I think those those kind of ideas are, yeah, they're still very prevalent. And I think that like likely leads to what you're talking about, which is people like young boys going off to college and transitioning to adulthood, feeling like I don't nobody's really connected to me. No one really knows me. Um, and maybe also part of that is like, I don't know myself, right? I'm not sure mm -hmm. who I am. Um, which I think in general is very common among young people at that age as well, because they're trying to figure life out and they're going off to college or going off into the workforce or something. Um, and so there's definitely a, a change that's happening that's that's not at home, maybe, or not around parents who are giving them that constant sort of uh, mirroring of like, I see you, here's who you are. You know, I'm, I'm verifying that you're a human in this world who likes to do A, B and C. Um, they kind of get pushed out into the world in yeah. that way. You mentioned the socialization and um, in, in an article that I read about your study, which is what brought it to my attention, you seem to be uh, seeing some links between the socialization of boys and young men and maybe why they are more likely to having experienced adverse childhood experiences, uh, experience muscle dysmorphia. So you, you this quote said, um, you know, they may be more likely to engage in the pursuit of muscularity to compensate for experiences where they once felt small, inferior, and at risk, mm -hmm. as well as to protect against future victimization. That is a rational thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, my quote says it all. <laughs> um, right? Yeah. No, no. I think that's very true. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, well, I think for the first part, for sure, like, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, feeling victimized, feeling small, feeling uh, scared, right? Uh, having, you know, being in a world where boys are, are um, you know, socialized to be maybe a bit more physical with each other, maybe mm -hmm. a bit more aggressive, and then having the experience of not being totally out of control, having someone taking that away from you, right, for whatever reason. And I think boys even more have this social expectation mm -hmm. you should be able to take care of yourself take care of yourself yeah 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 you exactly. know right and so if you haven't been able to do that it only makes sense uh that you would be pursuing this idea of muscularity to mm -hmm. show that again you're physically larger if you're built building muscle obviously you're physically stronger you can protect yourself in the future protect yourself against that victimization um and i think so i think that's a big yeah i think that's a big part of it um I will also say too, I think another component of it is you can, and we know this based on like eating disorder and body image research, that if young people are being abused or feeling unsafe or, um, you know, just not getting the sort of love and care that they desire or need, you can imagine how that sort of internalized and turned inward to I'm not good enough. And then that, of course, in a world where like body image and appearance is so commonly just talked about and shamed and stigmatized, like the expectations are very high that you can, you can imagine that shift of like, I'm not good enough to, I don't, I don't look the right way. I'm not strong enough. I'm not muscular enough. I have a, I'm not the right, the ideal body basically. So like that body dissatisfaction really comes into play. So. And there's that control factor. I, one thing that I have heard with eating disorders is that it's often, you know, related to this, this is something in my life that I can control. Yeah. And if you are a child in perhaps a chaotic environment or just, you know, a lot of random bad stuff happens regardless of the intent of your caregivers. Mm -hmm. It is outside of your control when you're mm -hmm. a child. Yeah. This is something you can control. I can control how much I eat. I can control how hard I work at the gym. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of maybe where the functional impairment aspect of it comes into oh, play, which sure. is, you know, I can, I can dedicate my time and my energy into this thing, like how many reps I do, how many times I go to the gym, how much I eat, am I counting my macronutrients and my calories and my protein and um, yeah, all that stuff becomes very controlled and, uh, and safe, right? If, it, if the social world has been modeled to you through your parents who are or caregivers who have now, ex you know, you've experienced these adverse child experiences with them, that feels very out of control. And you go into spaces where you do feel like in control through the gym or through, you know, managing food or whatever. Yeah, it feels very safe compared to a social world that feels very unsafe. More about coping strategies after these messages from our sponsors. Part of it too, that we haven't mentioned is this idea of, you know, have to take care of myself. And boys are often given the message that they have to stand up for other people. Definitely true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that makes makes a lot of sense as well, yeah. right? And that could be also, again, not the, all the ACEs that we looked at. Some of them were more just about household issues. So you can imagine siblings being a part mm -hmm. of those kind yeah. of situations where maybe they felt that they couldn't take care of siblings or take care of others that they should have been able to. Mm -hmm. um, if, for example, like a parent was incarcerated and, um, you know, there was some only one parent in the household and you're, you know, you, you're as a, maybe you're in like a parental figure kind of role right. where you're trying to take care of your other, your siblings or something like that. Um, so yeah, you, you can definitely imagine that being, uh, being the case for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the research study, which is endlessly fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love this kind of stuff. I believe you were a social worker before you mm -hmm. moved into research. Is that correct? Okay. Yep. So the beauty of that is like, this is not just data to you. Yep. I'm sure as you are doing your research, it's grounded very much in things that you actually observed and saw mm -hmm. in, in, humans. Can you kind of draw a link like, okay, this is what my research says. And this is making me think about, you know, maybe this person that I worked with or a couple of people I worked with. I know you can't share identifying details, yeah. but just, you know, broad yeah. strokes. It's actually always funny. I always, I always say this, which I think is very ironic is a lot of my clinical work was focused on eating disorders and body image stuff, but most of it was with women. <laughs> okay. And the reason for that is because Women Not seek a lot help. of boys and men come to that kind of treatment. They don't identify this stuff as a problem. So it's really hard. I don't know many clinicians who see a ton of people, <laughs> a ton of men yeah. and boys mm -hmm. with eating disorder issues. So it's actually a problem at large, right? And I think uh, I'll also say too, I think it's a bit ironic too, that when I moved more into academic and academia and moved out of clinical spaces, uh, I feel like there was a bit of a nice shift, which is a good thing where treatment programs and treatment in general was opening up more to males and boys, boys and young yeah. men. So, so I kind of feel like I missed the boat on that, <laughs> uh, which is a bit <laughs> interesting overall. Um, and so, but I think a lot of the research that I do is, is, um, and, and the, the interest I have in this topic is a lot of it just driven from having been in those clinical spaces and been like, where are all the guys? Like, where are yeah. all the boys? Where are mm -hmm. all the men? What are they experiencing? How does this kind of how do these sort of themes track on to their life experience as well? So, but I mean, I definitely, I, there's definitely a few, uh, and maybe a, a couple handful of those individuals, those boys and men that I did work with. And yeah, I mean, I think I can think of a, a young boy that I worked with who was experiencing some parental family issues related to uh, like some separation that was happening and there was an affair that had happened and um, and and dad was very interested in working out and build bodybuilding and you know, keeping his body in this sort of a specific shape um, and getting, he was feeling a lot of pressure. He was like 13 years old and getting a lot of pressure from dad to go to the gym and 
follow in his footsteps and things like that. And, and yeah, these things were compounded by, you know, his experience with his dad's pressures, feeling torn between his mom and his dad's experience relates to their separation. Um, and, uh, he actually wasn't really engaging in any muscularity oriented behaviors, but he was, he was purging after eating and, um, and that was kind of like a, obviously a very new thing for him. He wasn't really sure about it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I can, I can definitely see how these things relate to, you know, the experience of, of boys and, and young men contemporarily, of course. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of the parents out there listening mm-hmm. and wondering, should I start worrying? When should I start worrying? <laughs> They've already started worrying. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what What do I do? How, you know, how do I support my son? I do want him to be away from video games and get yeah. exercise. What's a parent to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, I think I, I, I always say these types of things too, which I, is a good caveat is that just because the research is saying these things, like doesn't mean that like, if a child, if a young boy is working out in the gym, doesn't mean they have muscle dysmorphia or just because they're taking like whey protein and creatine doesn't mean they're going to use steroids at some point. And similarly, just because a child experiences adverse childhood mm-hmm. experiences, yep. uh, the death of a parent or a caregiver. The separation or divorce of parents, poverty, sexual abuse does not necessarily mean that that child will have adverse outcomes later. Increases risk. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the good. That's the caveat. I think that all parents should sort of start with in this kind of context. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I do think that there's um, sort of relevant things to think about. Um, one is I always sort of think this, take this idea of like respectful curiosity. So like being curious about what your young person is doing. Um, are they interested in going to the gym? Are they interested in taking supplements? Are they interested in changing their body and their, or their food practices? Like, and if so, don't red, there's no red flag there. Like that's probably very normal. It is very normal. (laughs) Lots of boys are doing this type of stuff. Lots of young people are doing this. And so, you know, it's not about like raising the red flag and overreacting. It's about just sitting down and sort of following them in the process. Like let them take the lead for a little bit and show you what they're interested in and why. So um, that idea of respectful curiosity is like asking questions like, hmm, okay, so I noticed you like want to start, you know, using the supplement or go to the gym more or, you know, change your diet. Like, tell, well, where, where'd you learn about this stuff? Tell me more about who's influencing this. Like, are you following anyone on social media? Are your friends doing this mm-hmm. type of stuff? When you go to the gym, what are you doing there? Like, what kind of exercises? How do you feel about your body when you look in the mirror, right? Like, just asking questions and gathering the information is but really not- the first step. Not all of those questions, one at it, right it after another in one conversation. No, not, not after Parents. another. No, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. Good, good, good clarification. Yeah. Those are just example questions to ask. But yes, these are like things you will, you know, you put these things in as you go through the weeks and your life together as you're noticing things. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's, good. That's a good reminder. Don't interrogate your child. That's going to push them away. And so, so yeah. So then once you gather some information, well, then you can gauge like, okay, how much of a risk is this? Is this like a high risk thing? Is this a low risk thing? Is this just my son trying to do something new because his friends are doing it? Like, okay, fair. And then you can, of course, as you sort of track over time, you can assess, okay, what's changing, right? Is there now a more hyper-focus on some of these things? Is my child not wanting to uh, eat the types of foods they used to like ice cream or cookies or chips or something. 
because they are saying, making comments like, well, I can't do that because it's not part of my, you know, it's not going to help me meet my body goals. Like, you Even know I mean? on a birthday or a family yeah, celebration, a traditional, exactly, like, right. yeah. you know, fine. You don't want to eat cupcakes every day. Fine. I'm going to support fine. you on that. But yeah. like, never, I'm a little never. concerned. Exactly. Right. So like tracking some of those things, I think is then maybe some raising some, you know, yellow, mm -hmm, flags, mm -hmm. right. Um, so yeah, I think it's just about gathering the information um, and assessing from there. And then I think if you do feel like there's serious concern, like they're maybe they're losing weight pretty rapidly, or mm -hmm. you're noticing they're not socializing like they used to, or they seem just more irritable, more angry, more depressed, more anxious, more upset, like their grades are changing, right? Then, you know, those are maybe more significant warning signs of I need to maybe reach out to a pediatrician or a counselor or a mental health counselor of some sort to kind of get some more formal assessment. Um, those would be sort of the, the things I would think about. And then I think the other piece of puzzle I would, I always say to parents and, you know, kind of put out there is it's important to kind of look in the mirror yourself as well, which can sometimes be a hard thing to do. Yeah. But um, we know that parents are a major driver of some of these behaviors. Um, so are you making comments about people in larger bodies or different bodies? Are you feeling particularly obsessive and controlling around your food or exercise? Um, like, you know, just and that's no judgment. It's just about what are you modeling for your kids? Mm -hmm. um, and so not to, and, again, you know, not to place blame but just to recognize the impact uh, that you can have, right? As you sort of are, you know, helping your kids grow up in a world today. Do that part with respectful curiosity as well. Yes, because exactly. here's the thing, parents, you are growing up in this culture also mm -hmm. that has a, frankly, a lot of messed up norms and body image expectations that are utterly unreasonable. And guess what? You may have experienced some adverse childhood experiences as well that increase yep. your risk for these things. And, you know, Janet, you and I talk, uh, we end up coming back to this point so often, like so much of parenting, you end up having to confront your own stuff and mm -hmm. go, oh. Yeah, I think it's really important to like recognize, yeah, recognize your own <laughs> potential traumatic experiences. I mean, I think they're, they're, the numbers are somewhere between 50 to 60% of young people experience at least one adverse childhood experience. So it's very likely that, many people listening have experienced some type of adverse experience. Again, maybe not sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional neglect or something like that, but it could have been separation of a parent, separation of a, the parents, um, you know, it could have been living with some of the mental health issues or substance use disorder, right? Um, or even simple things like food insecurity or financial yeah. insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. Those create a lot of stress for people. So um, yeah, just recognizing that stuff is, is really important to understand. Well, and there's also this different level. I'm thinking about my mom right now and the message that I always got from my mom, who was a twin. So it came like double of being, you know, fat, mm -hmm. overweight, which they weren't. But it mm -hmm. was so ironic because on their 50th anniversary, we found my mom's wedding dress. And my daughter, who was in eighth grade, who was just a little slip of a girl, fit in my mom's wedding dress. And the message, though, had always been that she was large, that she mm. was big, that she, you know, needed to do the latest fad diet. And right. then there's there's the physical evidence of, mom, look at this was your wedding dress and you were this size. And yet, so that message, you know, filtered down to me and my sister. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I was aware of that and really conscious. I didn't want to give that message to my kids, but you know, I still hear her voice going through my head when yeah. I look at my body. 
So it's subtle. It's super subtle, but it's there. So again, as Jen said, you know, we got to look at ourselves and yeah, be gentle with yourself too. Cause I yeah. think parents also grew up like the, the proliferation of diet culture and um, you know, just this idea of like, you can change your body. You should change your body to fit these different ideals. And those ideals have changed over time for women, for men. Like it's just an evolving process. So I think, yeah, just recognize your own um, experience within that, that cultural phenomenon of diet culture and, you know, body ideals and, you know, just this sort of pressure to change and look a certain way. Um, Cause we're not, no one's immune to it. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. No one's immune to it. Uh, including healthcare professionals, mm -hmm. pediatricians, yep. social workers, this is a relatively new area of attention, recognizing uh, that boys can struggle with these issues too, recognizing muscle dysmorphia as an unhealthy thing rather than, I mean, we glorified Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, we glorify The Rock. We mm -hmm. So um, are there words perhaps that may be helpful for parents who are concerned about their son approaching a professional and you know maybe that they want to make sure this professional takes it seriously rather than just going oh you know well this is typical teenage stuff and yeah encourage him get him a set of weights mm -hmm. yeah i think i think if you if you're if you feel like you're at a point where you need to reach out to like a professional like a mental health professional um or even like a, a medical professional i mean i would definitely recommend um, trying to find someone who specializes in eating disorders or body image related issues, um, because those people are generally going to be a bit more sensitive and aware of the impacts of things like a doctor, a regular doctor without much kind of thought behind it saying, I don't know, everything seems fine. They just want to go to the gym, right? Like that right. Sort of insensitivity or lack of awareness is often very much there. Okay. And again, in a culture where we are proliferating the idea of like, health, uh, I'm sorry, like body weight, exercise, nutrition equals health, yeah, um, which isn't always the case. And I should say it's often not the case. Like, you know, that's, that's a problem, right? And so if you find, if you need to find somebody to get some help for your young person or for yourself, right, or your family, situation, yeah. you know, focusing on finding someone who has experience, knowledge, um, yeah, just working with people with eating disorders, because that's, again, not the muscle dysmorphia, we should have said this earlier, not the muscle dysmorphia is an eating disorder, but it is very parallel and very similar to that kind mm -hmm. of experience. And, and those individuals will be a lot more sensitive to notions around body ideals, notions around stigma around weight and, and things like that. We um, have done a couple episodes about, you know, various aspects, um, uh, eating disorders, also, you know, intuitive eating, just how, how do you deal with Eating as a family can be a, yeah. a tough thing with kids and their preferences. I'm going to put a lot of links in these show notes. And I really encourage listeners to go to that because there's a lot of wisdom there and links to other resources, including, you know, it's not necessarily easy to figure out uh, who's going to be the person who can help me, but there are websites and stuff that that have that information for you. With your, your paper recently, looking at this link between ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and uh, risk of muscle dysmorphia, you pointed out like, hey, given this is showing a, a pretty strong potential linkage, maybe we should consider screening for symptoms of muscle mm -hmm. dysmorphia in, you know, adolescents, young adults mm -hmm. that we know have experienced adverse childhood experiences. That's not something that currently happens, is it? 
Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. Um, and I think around, not even necessarily with those who experience adverse childhood experiences, right? I mean, that that definitely increases risk as we're talking about here. Um, but I think more screening at large for yeah. among young people, kind of in pediatric settings, in schools, uh, you know, if they're, if they're trained appropriately, um, you know, around eating disorders, body image, muscularity concern, muscle dysmorphia, symptomology, like we really need to be asking those questions. I mean, we know that like COVID had a huge impact on young people's experiences of body image issues and eating disorders. Um, and experiencing of adverse childhood experiences. And adverse childhood experiences. So yeah. many children lost a caregiver, lost, lost a beloved life. family member. I mean, yeah. lost years with peers, yeah. Um, yeah. financial insecurity. Yeah, so I think just having more you know, those screening opportunities are really needed. Um, and I think I'll also say too, this is a, a an important like limitation is that we don't actually have good screening tools for boys who experience eating disorders and body image. There are, you know, short screening tools, like five questions that, you know, are commonly used in like primary care settings, but they are very, very poorly able to detect eating disorders among boys. Uh, and again, not surprising because they were developed with the sort of notion of girls experience eating disorders and tested among girls. So um, we really need those screening tools that would be able to actually say, oh, this is someone who's at, you know, and again, those aren't saying diagnosis. They're more just saying, oh, this doctor needs to follow up with this person because they've met this threshold for screening for, you know, potential eating disorder or body image issue or muscle dysmorphia. So we actually need that stuff. <laughs> we need those tools uh, that providers can use uh, regularly, of course. And part of your work that you do is transferring research into policy. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely trying really hard. <laughs> I think my colleagues and I who are doing this work uh, are really trying to just put more research out there so that we can start to have conversations like this, of course, right? These are really important conversations um, because lots of people are listening and lots of people are then going to go and talk to other people. And it's eventually going to keep trickling to the right people who need to hear this type of information. Um, and I'm always conscious of just how do we get the data? How do we get more of this information published? I mean, by some estimates, we're like, you know, 10 plus years behind our knowledge around eating disorders and body image uh, for boys and young men and men um, than we are for females and girls. Uh, so we just have like a lot of catching up to do as far as best practices, the screening processes, intervention processes, all that kind of stuff. For our parents and our listeners, educators, healthcare providers, I think a big takeaway here is be aware. Mm -hmm. Be aware. And especially have your um, radar tuned and, and, you know, maybe look a little more carefully at kids that you know have, have been through and gone through some rough stuff because that increases their risk of things. So maybe don't be so quick to just, you know, brush things off as, oh, it's a phase, it's an interest respectful curiosity. I love mm -hmm. that phrase that you used, Kyle. And I think Janet and I are going to um, end up using it a lot <laughs> it moving forward. Yeah. I, I always end presentations that I do or like conversations that I have with this idea that like you can make a difference, right? Like yes. by listening, by having a conversation with your teenager or whoever, or your partner or a cousin, like, or a doctor, like you are making a difference by sharing this information or just listening, right? Um, so I do think that that's, that's a huge, like takeaway for everyone is like, mm -hmm. you can now, you have this knowledge, you now can make a difference and, uh, and use it, right. Use this knowledge in a, in a positive way. 
you can make a difference. I love it. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the research and the work you do. And um, I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for having me. This was really, really fun. More awareness, better screening tools. All these are beneficial to our boys and our men. If this podcast has been valuable to you, please share it with a friend, share it with your school, with your son's teacher. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com, and this is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.